we turn to the Gospel of John, and uh, it's interesting because there are as many resurrection narratives in John as there are in Matthew, Mark, Luke combined. Okay, uh, it is a rich tapestry. It's two full chapters, uh, seven stories, of which four are resurrection appearances. We had two in Luke, two in Matthew. Now we're going to have uh, four in John. See, so obviously, we are not going to clear the table with John today. We're going to take a couple of weeks to do this because these stories are, are just too good. We're going to begin where all the Gospels begin. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all begin at the tomb on Easter morning, the empty tomb. Uh, we're going to begin with one of the best-known stories that comes to us from John. This is the appearance to Mary Magdalene. Um, now, let's be honest here. Mary Magdalene has got a bit of a reputation. Is this true? So we're going to need to clear a little bit here. We're not going to take a lot of time to do this, but just to remind ourselves <laughs> that culturally, a lot of what people think they know about Mary Magdalene is just flat out not true. It's just mythology. Uh, she's developed a reputation thanks to the little cottage industry of a lot of books. Anybody read Holy Blood, Holy Grail, you know, Da Vinci Code, and about 5,000 other books like that. Uh, she is known as the fallen woman, the prostitute, or if you just want to get guttural about it, she's the whore, Right? And that sort of, and then you get all this, this uh, I would say, wonderful art, but it's not particularly wonderful. She's usually portrayed topless, with red hair, with the look, come <laughs> hither, you know, yeah, this kind of thing. At best, late medieval period, she morphs into the repentant sinner. You know, she makes the full journey, you know, from being the fallen woman who, by the way, ran a brothel, and then she married John, the disciple. And he pulled her out of, you know, it's, it's, anyway, you got to love the Middle Ages, good stuff. Uh, what's interesting is most of the buzz and most of the publicity, most of the stuff that's being written about her is based on her sexuality, which is just really kind of odd. Uh, more recently, remember there's speculation, did she have a romantic relationship with Jesus? Was she his wife? And people pull in all kinds of obscure stuff that's written, you know, like, over a thousand years later. Uh, none of this is accurate. None of it is remotely <coughs> biblical. What's particularly striking is if you go to the biblical material, you go to the first century material, you get a very consistent portrait of who Mary is. And it is the exact opposite of the one that many people would have today. Um, the image that we have actually comes down to us because uh, over the centuries, people began to confuse different stories. For example, just over the years, anybody named John became the same John. You know, anybody named Louis became the same Louis. Anybody named Mary, and by the way, according to scholars, 40% of the people living in Palestine in the first century were named Mary, okay, or some form of Mary. So we have no less than 11 Marys they're referred to in the New Testament, as many as that. Some of them may be duplications. What happens is these begin to be conflated into, into one. Or sometimes it's not even Mary. Sometimes it's two stories in the Bible side by side. A story about a woman who was a sinner in the story. Start a new story about Mary. Well, guess what Mary just became? The sinner. Okay. And you start conflating them into those. Now, this was helped along mightily by a pope living in the 6th century. Uh, sermon by Pope Gregory the Great. What's interesting is he was not the first to do this. The first one who began to pull these stories together was actually in the second century, a guy, uh, a guy named Celsus, who was a, an enemy of the church. 
and just wanted to debunk our faith. And so he had all kinds of nasty stuff to say about everything. And he pulled some of this stuff in. But in, uh, in the 6th century, by the way, this, there's nothing negative in this. Uh, he does not intend to do anything bad, as you can see. He's just preaching an Easter sermon. Have you ever known a, pre a preacher to preach a sermon and maybe wander a little bit off text? <laughs> or maybe get the story just a little wrong? Okay, he gets it a little wrong. She whom Luke calls a sinful woman, one story, whom John calls Mary, not Magdala, just Mary, which Mary we don't know, uh, we believe to be, there's the powerful part of it, we believe to be the Mary from whom seven devils were ejected according to Mark, and in Mark, that Mary is who? Mary Magdala. Clearly, he's wrong. It's three different stories. It's three different characters. But he, but once the Pope says it, it has a life of its own. And so it kind of comes down to it, you know. Now, ironically, all of this obsession with her sexuality clouds over her real significance. And it's only been in the last 15 or 20 years that scholars have been begun to push aside. Matter of fact, the Catholic Church, you know this, the Catholic Church officially apologized for that sermon. And, and pulled back the statement about Mary and said that the Pope was just wrong, even if he was Pope. Fortunately, he did not say, say that ex cathedra from the chair of Peter. It was just an opinion he had. They're wrong, and they apologized for it. Uh, and now there's a sort of a new deal, going back to the scriptures. In the Bible, and in early Christian tradition for many, many centuries, and I will say this, in the Eastern Church to this day, there's a very, very different view of Mary. In the Eastern Church, she's Saint Mary Magdalene. And she has a lot of titles that are all very, very uplifting. Whoop, I hit the wrong button, okay? See if Jackson can correct my mistake. All right, operator error. There we go, okay. Uh, early centuries, what's significant about Mary is not her sexuality, it is her spirituality. And it comes not from later tradition or a pope in the 6th century. It comes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Real consistent imagery here. Uh, she is a disciple of Jesus, and she's not any disciple. Second, probably only to Peter. In importance and significance, and in some ways, maybe even more important than Peter. According to the New Testament, she is one of his most important disciples. Uh, the Gospels tell us, and this is, uh, Ma Mark tells us this, the earliest Gospel, she was with Jesus in Galilee from the beginning. Now, we don't know exactly what beginning Mark has in mind, but she goes back. She's not a latecomer to the movement. She's there from the very beginning. She helped finance his ministry. You knew that, right? Two sources, not two versions of the same source, Mark and Luke, independent testimony, that she's, you know, uh, y'all know that they're, uh, this week the Pope is dedicating Migdal as a holy site. Um, one of y'all actually gave me the article about that. When we were over in Israel about th three years ago, they were just excellent. They, they discovered it in 2009, Migdal, where Mary Magdala is from. They discovered the, the synagogue that she would have been at, that Jesus would have been at. They, they discovered the bima, the, which you put the Torah scrolls on, was still there. And has the earliest depiction of the second temple 
carved in stone. I mean, it's a wonderful find. They found the little, the little marketplace and the whole thing. So next, in 2015, when we go back to Israel, guess where we're going? We're going to McDowell, okay? And all that's in the news this week. Uh, she followed him to Jerusalem with that cadre that came down. She was with him through the events of Holy Week. Uh, we're told in multiple Gospels that she's one of several women who when the male disciples fled for their lives, they remained at his feet there at the cross. She is, in addition to this, the only figure, the only one who's consistently mentioned in all four Gospels in the resurrection narratives. The other Gospels, the names change. The only, the only name that never changes is Mary Magdala. It's Mary Magdala and Salome. It's Mary Magdala and the other Mary. It's Mary Magdala and the other women. It's Mary Magdala and you know, whoever. But it's always Mary Magdala who's there. She is one of three people who actually were privileged to have seen the Lord by themselves. It's a very select group. Peter, James, and Mary. Everybody else sees Jesus in, in sort of group settings, but she has this problem, which is what we're looking at today. But her real claim to fame, we haven't even mentioned yet. Her real claim to fame, what makes her a saint in the Eastern Church, and what gives her such notoriety in a positive way, is simply that it's, it's the story that we're about to look at in the Gospel of John. She has two honors that make her stand head and shoulders above everybody else. First of all, She's the first one, according to John, who actually saw Jesus. That makes her in Christian tradition what is called the primary witness to the resurrection. That is a title. Google it. Uh, you know, Wikipedia it. That's a title that she carries in Christian tradition. She's the primary witness. Not only that, she's the one who, in following Jesus' instructions, takes the Eastern message he has risen to the other disciples. That makes her the apostle to the apostles. The one who proclaims the message to those who will then carry the message to the world. So does she have some significance? And does it have anything to do with her sexuality? Absolutely not. I think we've set the stage. We're there. John 20. Early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark. John loves symbolism, right? John uses a lot of light and darkness, symbolism. Mark tells us the sun was up. John's going to have none to do with it. He wants you to understand it was dark in every way that that word means. Mary Magdala came to the tomb, saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. We're kind of tracking those stories now. She ran and went to Simon Peter. Makes sense. Who would you go to? Head of the disciples. Uh, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Wouldn't you like to know who that is? John will never tell you. But he appears several times at key places. The one whom Jesus loved. The beloved disciple. The other disciple. Lots of ink spilled over who this guy is. Could be a woman. <coughs> but whoever it was could outrun Peter to the tomb. So <laughs> Peter may have been slow. You don't know. They said to them. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Now, this is one of those places where you call conflated traditions. How many people are at the tomb? We. So there's a chance here that, that John has picked up uh, some of the, the earlier story where it's a group of women, and that has gotten woven in with the story he's telling about Mary. Now, still in the dark. 
John loves symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism going here. If you want to talk about where Mary is, this is going to come out in spades. Where is Mary on Easter morning? She's in the dark. Every single blasted way you can define that word, she's in the dark. Uh, physically, John wants us to know the sun's not up. Emotionally, she's devastated. Uh, she's also in the dark spiritually. She is obsessed. This is, this is the, probably the key thread that holds the whole passage together. She's obsessed with the fact that she's lost something. In three guesses to what she lost, she lost her Lord. He's been crucified. Now, what has she lost? She's lost the body. Okay. She's fixated. Three times she's going to come back. She's even going to talk to the resurrected Jesus. Where would you put the body? You know, because she's just so obsessed she cannot see anything except what she's missing. Uh, and again, this is a feature that's going to drive the whole narrative. Now, John weaves into the Mary story the second story of Peter and the beloved disciple. So we shift. Then Peter and the other disciple, unnamed, set out and went toward the tomb. And we have a sprint. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Peter will lay, will lay off the ding-dongs. Uh, he reached the tomb first. So the other disciple, unnamed, gets to the tomb first. Here's where it gets interesting. He bent down and looked in and saw the linen wrappings right there. You know the, you know, the Shroud of Turin? You know, the, the, the wrappings that would have been around the body of Jesus, okay? Didn't go in. Okay, you go to a tomb where somebody's been buried and the body's not there and the wrappings aren't there. I'm not sure I would go in either, okay? Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb. You know how Simon Peter's portrayed? And he's the guy with the sword and, you know, uh, act first, think later. You know, Simon's very impetuous. It, this fits. Barrels right under the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there. But then it gets really interesting. And the cloth. Well, so what? Cloth. The cloth that had been in Jesus' head. Not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. That's a lot of information for a piece of cloth. So what has John just told you? Pay attention. Pay attention. Focus. This is important. It's one of the most important things in the whole story. Now, if John is wants his congregation to pay attention, where would their minds be referencing for what this cloth would be? The Old Testament. We want a story with a cloth. We want a story with a cloth that uses the exact Greek word that John's going to use. It's exactly where he's going. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in. He saw. Now, we've already been told he saw the wrappings. So what do you think he just saw? The cloth. And believed. Seeing the cloth. That Peter saw. Is what brings this disciple. To believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Better believe John's doing something very important here. For as yet. They did not understand the scripture. Well he's figured out something. That Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their home. So we're going to have other stories in John later where they're still going to be in Jerusalem. So they're not going back to Galilee. They're just returning to wherever they're staying in Jerusalem. Okay. Now, one thing that particularly uh, intrigues people is who in the heck is this other disciple? And so lots of speculation of that. We don't know male or female. We don't know a name. 
We don't know. Is it one of the twelve or is it one of the other disciples? John is particularly fond of disciples who are not part of the twelve. Thomas, Nathaniel, some of the others. Uh, he also brings in many of the women. He's also known as the disciple whom Jesus loved or also sometimes called the beloved disciple. Historically, we flat out don't know. There is no clue in the Gospel of John that would let you answer this question. Although he traditionally, uh, as many of you know, this disciple has been understood to be John, son of Zebedee, brother of James, and so in tr Christian tradition. But that's not in the Gospel of John. That's just the same way it's believed that that same John is the John who wrote the Gospel of John. Probably not. Probably a different John, but we don't know. Many scholars believe that this disciple may be the source of much of the tradition that's unique to John. There's an interesting thing in the Gospel of John. It shows signs of being edited. It shows signs of several crises of faith within the community. One of the crises of faith you find in John is that when this beloved disciple died, the community went into a crisis because that beloved disciple was so important to that community. Probably that disciple is the source of all this tradition is the best guess on that. Uh, that's all that we know. This disciple is the first to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. It's not based on his having seen Jesus. Jesus has not appeared yet to anybody. Uh, it's based on something he sees in the tomb. John tells us first that this guy saw the linen wrappings. Uh, this is not what brings him to faith. He and Peter both see the linen wrappings. Uh, it's not what John focuses our attention on. John goes to excruciating detail to say to us, this cloth is important. So he describes it in extraordinary detail. It is uh, the one that covered Jesus' face in addition to the shroud. It, uh, according to verse 7, covered his head, which means his face. It's not lying. It's separate, distinct. You can see it different. It's not just laying there. It has been rolled up in a particular kind of way and it has been set aside in the place by itself. Now, for John's audience, that language of a cloth that has been set aside is potent language because there just happens to be a story in the Old Testament of the exact same word in Greek, a cloth, having the exact same thing done to it being set aside and being set aside over and over. This is the cloth that covered his face in death, and now Easter morning, rolled up, set aside in the place by itself. Uh, so the question is, what's John doing? Why so much detail? What is it about this cloth that would lead the <coughs> disciple to move him to faith? The empty tomb didn't do it. The, the wrapping of the body of the shroud didn't do it. But this cloth has that power for him. Now the consensus, if you go to commentaries, is basically this. John wants us, he's assuming that we speak Greek, which we don't, but he wants us to think back on the story of Moses at Mount Sinai. And when Moses, remember when Moses is going back and forth up the mountain to see God, he'd go up to God, he'd come down to the people, he'd go back to God. Uh, the word that's used for cloth also means veil. And depending on what story it may be translated, or what version it may be translated as veil or cloth, it's the exact same word. Uh, that word is used, the word that John uses in the Gospel of John, in this story, is only found three times in the Old Testament, in, the, in Greek, the same word. It is all three of them with the story of Moses, all three of them at Mount Sinai, 
And all three of them in the same type of situation. Moses would put aside the veil that covered his face. And in Greek, it, you know, it's the exact same wording uh, that he's used to set here. And the set aside, exact same wording. So it would be very easy reading one story to call to mind the other story. Uh, at Mount Sinai, what Moses would do is, when he came off the mountain to speak to the people, he put the veil on. Remember that story? Because his face shone because he'd been before God. When's the only time that he took the veil off? When he ascended up the mountain to be in the presence of God, he would take the veil off. So that's the Exodus story. With people in front of God. You remove the veil. You set aside the veil when you go to be in the presence of God Almighty. Uh, this is probably what John wants us to do, to think about this story. That one particular set of circumstances. Here it is in Exodus 34. When Moses spoke to the people, he put a veil on his face. Whenever Moses went up before the Lord to speak to him or with him, he would take the veil off. Exact same language. Symbolically, the empty tomb story is saying to us, Jesus has now set aside the veil, taken it off, set it aside. So where's Jesus? What has John been telling us since chapter 1 about Jesus? The one who came from God must return to God. He must ascend to the Father. He must ascend to his glory. John said that 50 times if he said it once in the Gospels. Okay, over and over and over. Now, symbolically, John's telling us one more time. He's not. Remember, Mark, why do you seek the, the, the living among the dead? He's not here. You know, this is John's same way of saying that he's not here. He's gone to be with God. And again, John tells us that over and over and over. He must return to the father to be in his glory. Now, this cloth. Seeing it and seeing that it set aside. Realizing what it means, by the way, what's the only way this disciple would understand what that cloth means? If he knew his scriptures, okay. Remember Luke? What's the key to understanding the resurrection? The scriptures. And John, what's the key to understanding? If you know the story, you can figure it out. If you don't know the story, you will be totally lost, okay. Now, another piece of what seems to be going on here is uh, something that John is going to do again in the Thomas story that we'll see next week. John wants us to understand the disciple who believed in the tomb. Did he ever see Jesus? So do you have to see the risen Lord to believe in the resurrection? Or as, or as Jesus will say to Thomas, blessed are you because you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. It's probably the same reason Mark's gospel ends the way it does. With that kind of uh, thing going on. It's woven into this story. You don't have to see Jesus which, by the way, by the time John's writing his gospel in the year 90 or 95, are they still seeing the, the risen Lord? No. But are they still being called to faith? Yes. And here's a story that reinforces that. You can do. You can look at the scriptures. Again, Thomas next week will look at that. If you know the scriptures, you know your faith. Brings us to Mary's now going to the tomb. Verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, the other at his feet. Again, 
lot of detail. He's saying, pay attention, folks. If you know your Old Testament, do any two angels come to mind in the Old Testament? Gabriel, yeah. Ark of the Covenant, two seraphim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> Where does God dwell? In the space in between. Okay, what do we have in the tomb? An empty space, an empty tomb. Watch what he does here. By the way, this is also old cemeteries. Remember, you had two markers, one at the feet, one at the head? That's where it comes from. In other words, your beloved is being guarded by two angels. That's why we have white tombstones and why we used to have two of them, although that's changed a lot. Perpetual care just doesn't quite do the same thing. I don't know <laughs> they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, where's the body? You know, where have you taken my Lord? I do not know where they've laid him. She is a laser beam focused on where is the corpse? Where is the body? When she said this, uh, she turned around, saw Jesus standing there. She did not know that it was Jesus. Remind you of another story? The walk to Emmaus, okay? You know, she's not looking for a living Lord. She's looking for something else. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Hard to know in English, but in Greek, whom can also be translated as what? Same word. And the Gospel of John, the first thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of John is what are you looking for? Exact sentence in Greek. So mentally, you're going to make that leap. Okay. Supposing him to be the gardener. Okay. Confusion is the theme we see in all these stories. You know, she does not have any idea. She said to them, sir, if you've taken the body away, Tell me where you've lain him, and I will take him away and then do with him what is fitting and is proper. Where is she, what's she focused on? Laser beam. Where is the body? Jesus said to her, Mary, or in Greek, Maria. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, my teacher, my rabbi. Jesus said to her, this is that famous one that gets written up, no limitandre in Latin, do not cling to me. Do not hold on to me because and that's been interpreted in all kinds of sexual ways because I have not yet ascended to the father. You cannot touch me because that's not happened. Go to my brothers. His disciples are what? They're brothers. By the way, the word in the Greek is Adelphoi. It's, it's gender neutral. Brothers and sisters. OK. Uh, th who are they brothers and sisters to? To Jesus and the gospel, of John. Who is Jesus one with? God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters to Christ. We are brothers and sisters in a sense to the divine. I'm ascending to my father. Here it comes to your father. To my God and your God. You get that language? It's, it's powerful language. It's the language of equality. Exact opposite of Matthew, Mark and Luke. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And other gospels were told they don't believe a word of it. We're not told that in John. And she told them that she had said uh, that he had said these things to her. Now, two angels, Jewish tradition. We want to kind of go back to our, our, our background here. Uh, the center of the Jewish faith until it got lost. And we don't know when it got lost was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, this is an artist rendering, was where two, two seraphim, uh, they're actually fiery snakes with wings, uh, literally. 
Uh, and in the book of Exodus and Numbers, they bite people. Uh, but we depict them more as like angels. Uh, and the, the word there was is that God dwells in the middle. So after Exodus, after describing how to build the ark, this is what God tells Moses. And this is what John probably has in mind. There I will meet you. Well, where are you going to meet me? From above the mercy seat. That's the Ark of the Covenant. From between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant. So where is God found? Jesus' body has been there. There's now an empty space between two angels. Jesus appears and she meets the risen Lord. Okay. This is probably not coincidental for John. John is trying to give us some powerful messages here. The risen Jesus addresses her with a question. Who? What? Same in Greek. Who or what are you looking for? And again, there's two levels to this question. One is, what's she looking for? The body. She still has not found it. She's still concerned about it. She's still obsessed with it. John wants us to know that, it, that even though that is true, there is something much deeper going on here. Uh, again, it's going to remind us of a question that Jesus asked. These are the first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to ask this question to Andrew when Andrew comes to him. Um, in the other Gospels, it's follow me to him. He's going to say, uh, uh, come and see, come and experience. But the word here is, you know, what is it you're looking for? What is it you want? What is it you desire? Mary now gets the same question. With Andrew, it was a call to follow, a call to be a disciple. Now, Mary's already a disciple, but again, it's a call to follow. This time, not the physical Jesus, but to follow the risen Lord. And John loves irony. So you have this wonderful scene. She's there weeping. She's looking for a body. Jesus is standing right beside her. She has no idea he's there. Why? You ever been like that? You ever been so focused on something you missed the obvious? Okay. She's in that. She's in one of those moments. You know, she can't see what's right in front of her, probably for many reasons, you know. But one reason is she's still fixated looking for a physical body. Then the, the whole passage turns on this interchange. Jesus said to her, Maria. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. Um, this is probably John wants us to have in mind the good shepherd passage that he's already laid out for us. John 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And what has just happened? She's heard his voice. She recognizes it. She turns. Uh, now, in John, this, this word turn means a lot more. I mean, there's, there's physical. Yeah, you know, she turns, but there's a lot more going on in there. Uh, it's not just physical action. Mary turns away from the tomb to what? The risen Lord. Is that of some significance? What has she been absolutely focused on so far? The dead body. Okay. She's able to see him when she turns away. She's turning from the past to the future. Uh, throughout the narrative, she has been obsessed with the body. She's re repeatedly three times brought it up. From this point on, the body is never mentioned again because she's turned. No more tomb. No more death. No more body, no more past. She's now on board with Jesus and where he's moving. She calls him teacher and Lord. Again, John is, is like a tapestry. These threads get woven in and out. 
Anytime that John uses a symbol or language, you want to refer back to John. Where was this used before? It gives you some insight into that. Uh, we saw this earlier, and it reflected Jesus' self-understanding in John 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So what does she now call him? Teacher, and more than that, Lord. Kurios. This is the second highest praise or title given to Jesus. The only one that surpasses it is Thomas, who will say, my Lord and my God. Second only to that is this. This is way beyond where Peter gets. Peter gets to, uh, you are the Christ. She's moved way beyond that. This cling to me, uh, we have a whole cottage industry of books about that. Uh, don't waste your time. I don't think they're really worth it. Uh, <laughs> not, this is not about sex. I mean, if you read the story, what's she clinging to? She's clinging to the corpse. She's clinging to the body. She's clinging to the, the tomb. She's clinging to the past. She's clinging to what was. At best, she would probably hope that what was could come back. That's gone. There's no more what was. It's going to be something entirely different. It's not going to be physical. It's not going to be a corpse. Uh, she needs to hear this because she's so focused backwards, she can't go forward. Go and tell the brothers. So she is now given, in this scene, the task. Who has seen Jesus at this point in the story? One person. How is anybody else in the world going to know that he's risen? Jesus just told her, get, tell, tell my brothers, tell the disciples. Actually, Adelphoi, tell my brothers and sisters. And John, there are multiple female disciples. Uh, she goes, she proclaims, I have seen the Lord. Uh, she is literally, what is the word? You know what the difference between a disciple and an apostle? A disciple is a follower. What is an apostle? One who proclaims, you know. Who's the first apostle? Well, in the Gospel of John, it may be the woman at the well. Remember her? She went into town, converted the whole town. You know, so the first apostle is either one of two women. Okay, but Christian tradition gives it to Mary because she's the first to proclaim not just that Jesus is the Messiah, but that in fact he has risen from the dead and he's been seen and she bears witness. That is only half of chapter 20. <laughs> uh, we have Thomas in chapter 20. We have the other disciples, and then we have the appearance to Peter. Remember the story, Peter, do you love me? Three times, three times he denied. Three times he's going to get a chance to rectify that. Uh, we can handle that next week. So that is to look forward.